The first principles of our study of the confession uh, start with the first six chapters. Scripture, the doctrine of God, and creation. Because it is upon this uh, that everything else in Scripture, everything else in theology, uh, is built upon. We can't move forward and study, for example, the church or the Christian life or uh, baptism or worship uh, without first understanding what do we know and believe about Scripture, who is God as He's revealed Himself, and of course, we must know ourselves as well. I said last week, John Calvin uh, famously starts his institutes uh, by saying the two most important things that we must know is God and ourselves. Who He is and who we are by comparison. So that's what we're doing. And, and last week, uh, I started with, as we began to look through uh, the cha- uh, chapter 2 on the doctrine of God, I asked the question... Why is the doctrine of God so important? And what I argued from there, just as a refresher, what we see from the Psalms is that in times of difficulty, there's nothing so stabilizing than knowing who God is. God is my rock. He is my fortress. He is my deliverer. Over and over again in the Psalms, when trouble arises... The psalmist runs to who God is and takes refuge in God as merciful, as God as just, as God is loving and steadfast. So, chapter 2 is important in that respect. Um, But also, the psalms are the prayer and worship book of the church. And so, it's the nature of God, it's the attributes of God, uh, that, that serves as the foundation to lead to pride, right and proper worship. So whether we're talking about the Christian life, whether we're talking about worship specifically, the doctrine of God is centered to that. And so that's kind of uh, what I argued from as we began chapter 2, why it's so important that we understand who God is. Um, so again, review from last week. We jumped into the attributes of God. And as I mentioned, uh, uh, I taught on this. Uh, I took 15 weeks to teach this one chapter back in 2020. So we're getting really just a blitzkrieg through this. Uh, but the attributes of God, uh, we began with the incommunicable attributes of God. Who remembers what the incommunicable attributes, what does that refer to? An attribute that we do not share with God. This is in contrast to the communicable attributes, the attributes that we do share. Um, For example, God is immutable. He does not change. We change. We don't share that with God. But God is loving. Well, we can love too. We can share that attribute with Him. So we focused on the incommunicable attributes of God. And what we went through was... The fact that God is the living and true God. He is life itself. He gives life to all. He is the fountain of life. Life is not something above Him that He possesses. He is life. He is also true. He is truth itself. There aren't things that are true floating out in the universe that that, uh, uh, happen to describe Him or that He meets that standard. He is truth. We talked about the 
aseity of God. He is in and of himself. He is outside of creation entirely. He needs absolutely nothing. He is dependent upon absolutely nothing. He is separate from creation. He is outside of it entirely. We talked about the infinity of God. God is infinite in everything. Infinite knowledge. Infinite in being. He is beyond limit or limitation. We talked about the incomprehensibility of God. Because he's ase, because he's outside of creation, he's not part of this creation, because he's infinite, we will never fully understand him. We will never comprehend him. We can only know him according to how he's revealed himself. Because if the finite can understand God, then we are infinite ourselves. And he's not infinite. We talked about the spirituality of God. This follows his incomprehensibility and his infinity. He fills heaven and earth. He's spirit. Uh, he, he, he is infinite in every respect. Not bound by a body. Not bound by time and space. We talked about the impassibility of God. God does not have human-like emotions. He doesn't have emotions. He is impassable. It's an aspect of his uh, immutability. He does not change. He doesn't react. He doesn't experience time as we experience time. Because he's outside of time. We talked about the omnipresence of God. He fills heaven and earth. We talked about the simplicity of God. Uh, I used the Lego Man example for that. Um, God is not made up of various parts that come together to form God. Right? We are spirit and body. God, everything that He is, He is. He's not made up of parts that have just come together to form Him because those parts would rule over Him then. So, that's all review. Um, I know you got all of that. It's all clear, right? Um, so, today, we're, we're going to move to the communicable attributes of God. Um, after we talk about immutability, that's the only one we, we left off on last week. Um, the last kind of um, aspect of uh, incommunicable, and then we will jump to holiness, wisdom, love, grace, mercy, long-suffering, goodness, faithfulness, and justice. I'm already wondering how we're going to get through this. I'm going to speed through at some point, not stop for questions unless you raise your hand. So... If you want to raise your hand, that's great. I will answer your question. But this is what we're going to look at today. So let's begin with immutability. What does it mean to be immutable? Not changing. Not changing. Sam? Same thing. Mutable, right? Is language of, of change. It's language of, of morphing into something else or, or in, in some respect, change. Um, this refers then to the changelessness of divine perfections. God is free from all mutation of being, like who he is, or his attributes like love or mercy or justice, or place, like going from one place to another, or will, like changing his mind, 
and from all physical and ethical change. God does not change. This refers to the eternal and perpetual identity of the divine essence with all its perfections. And it's also inextricably linked to immortality and eternality and incorruptibility. Ah, thank you. Maybe you guys can hear me a little bit better now. God does not change. Now, let me just ask you a question, though. In Scripture, we see something like um, Genesis 6. God regretted that He made man. Or we see um, in 1 Samuel, God regretted that He made Saul king. Doesn't it seem like God changes His mind? Changes His will? How do we understand that? Sam, you're on it today. Is it like um, using language that we understand to describe uh, how God operates? So just like bringing it down to our levels? Yes, exactly. Um, I'm not going to use the technical term for that. <laughs> um, it's confusing. Yes, yeah, so it's, it's talking after the manner of men. Uh, John Calvin says at that point, Genesis 6, uh, that God stoops to use baby talk. So that we can understand um, kind of um, what's going on. And in some sense as well, from our perspective, God does change. Because we experience His decrees in time. But from our perspective, God changes. But from His perspective, He does not. In fact, even after uh, that reference to Saul... Later, it says that God, uh, in the same chapter, God does not repent or change his mind. He is not like a man who repents or changes his mind. So he um, does what he always intended to do, but from our perspective, he changes. And sometimes that perspective is captured by the biblical writers. That's a whole other discussion itself, but God is immutable. And... From the Puritan, Thomas Vincent, um, he categorized or kind of focused on three unchangeable, immutable aspects of this uh, attribute. In his nature and his essence, in his counsel and his purpose, this would be like his promise, and in his love and in his blessing. Think of how the Lord says, I, the Lord, do not change. Therefore, O Israel, you are not consumed. Part of our hope and confidence in this life is that God does not change. That His love for you is not going to change tomorrow. That He's not going to, uh, you're not going to wake up and He's going to say, you know what, I'm just done with you. I've changed my mind. The unchangeableness of God is what gives us Hope, it gives us assurance and comfort, particularly in the ups and downs of life and in struggles with sin. So God is immutable. And really what this means is that all that is in God is God. 
He is what he always was and will always be. His love is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. His mercy is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Every one of his attributes is unchanging. It means that God does not change, but it also means that God cannot change. I don't read cannot as ability, you know. Can God create a rock so big that he can't pick it up? Um, You've heard that before, which is using creaturely categories to try to, um, I don't know, creaturely categories to try to, I don't know, disprove God. Um, but, But immutability is saying more than he does not change. It's saying that he cannot change, that that his changelessness is not just because he's never going to change his mind like a decision he made. His changelessness is part of his very nature. If God could change his decision, he wouldn't be immutable. You can switch me out. That's weird. If God could change his mind, he would not be immutable. And if God could change his mind, there's no comfort in that. Our hope is not in a decision that he's made. Our hope is in who he is as the unchanging God. Think with me here as well. All change implies limitation. Um, If God could change for the better, he wasn't perfect to begin with. If God could change for the worse, he's no longer perfect. A God who is not eternally good isn't perfect, and a God who isn't eternally perfect isn't God. Herman Bavink said here, those who predicate any change whatsoever in God, whether in respect to His essence, knowledge, or will, diminish all of His attributes. Independence, simplicity, Eternity, omniscience, and omnipotence. This robs God of his divine nature and religion of its firm foundation and assured comfort. God is immutable. Let's go on. He is most holy, wise, free, and absolute. This is turning to the communicable attributes of God. And we're going to work through these one by one. The holiness of God. The confession says that God is most holy. Throughout Scripture, God is described described as holy more than any other characteristic. This is kind of central here. God is the Holy One. His name is holy. He's glorious in His holiness. The seraphim continually cry, holy, holy, holy. Isaiah 6.3 R.C. Sproul said here, there can be no worship, no spiritual growth, think about that, no true obedience without an understanding of the holiness of God. In fact, if you've never read his book, The Holiness of God, uh, move that to the top of the list. It's one of the most important books, I think, written um, in the last 20 years, 
25 years, 30 years, how long it's been out. It's really good. Holiness is the absence, the antithesis even, of all moral blemish or defilement. It's God's absolute purity, His absolute transcendence, His sanctity, His separateness. Separate from everything in creation. It is His very excellency of the divine nature. Stephen Charnock says that His holiness is what supremely renders Him lovely. It's what's most beautiful about God is the fact that He's holy. Holy like nothing else. Um, Holiness also characterizes all of His attributes. Um, So, for example, we may say His love is a holy love. You, You know what that... What, what that essentially means is that His love is not like any other love in the universe. I talked about this last week. Archetype, ectype, creature-creator creature, distinction. We love... Okay, God's love is both quantitatively different than our love, so that means it's bigger, it's greater but it's also qualitatively different. It's an entirely different kind of love. Now there's an analogy there, similarities, but because He is Creator and we are creature, like His love is categorically different. I, I use the example of, of saying that somebody is like, you know, uh, she's as mad as a tiger. Right? Like, an animal and a human's anger is entirely different. But there are similarities that we can describe them, and so there's a connection by way of analogy. That's what, when we say that all of God's attributes are holy, that's kind of what it gets at. His mercy, His love, His justice, His righteousness, His goodness, His grace, all of these things are, are entirely in and of themselves. They're greater than any other example of such in the universe, but they're also a different kind, even though there's overlap in the analogy. We are made in the image of God. We image Him, but we're not the same as Him. So it characterizes all of His attributes. God is holy in and of Himself. His very essence is holy. He's always been holy. He always will be holy. And so all of His attributes and all of His actions are holy as well. And this is why we begin here when we talk about the communicable attributes of God. Holiness is the center of all of the things that that we share with Him in those attributes, as I just described. We share in them, but His holiness sets them apart. Uh, Four aspects of holiness that Thomas Watson points out. He is intrinsically holy in his nature. He is primarily holy. He is the pattern of holiness, the archetype, as I described last week. He is efficiently holy, so he's the cause of all holiness in others. 
And he's transcendently holy. He is far above the capacity of the angels and the glorified saints to behold. That's why holiness, we are called to be holy as God is holy. Because it really categorizes everything that God is. And we are called to be like him in his holiness. So, to summarize holiness, all that is in God is God. Whatever He is, He's transcendently holy. He is the cause of all holiness, all of, all of our holiness as well. And let me just stop for a second and ask you, think about what was holiness in the Old Testament and what is holiness in the New Testament? How is that different? Now, it's not ultimately different, but... According to the covenant, how is it different? What was holiness in the Old Testament? Following the law? Is that what you said? Yeah, and what did the law really, really center around in the Old Testament? Sacrificial system. Sacrificial system. So, washings and cleansings and... Rituals in the temple, God's holy sanctuary, we'll hear that in Daniel 8, the next hour, God's holy temple. What is holy in the New Testament then? Since those things have been, have ceased with Christ, what's holy in the New Testament? Christ and our union with Christ? Absolutely. Absolutely. How are we called to walk in holiness then? Is it through these washings and rituals? Romans 12, 2. Present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world. All the Old Testament rituals pointed forward to our union with Christ, as these ladies just shared, our union with Christ and then our moral cleanliness in Him and devotion to live for Him. Holiness. Let's move on and move quickly. (laughs) God is most wise, the confession says next. Most free, most absolute, working all things according to the counsel of his own immutable and most righteous will for his own glory. What is wisdom? What do we mean when we talk about the wisdom of God? What, what is God's wisdom? What is wisdom in general? I'm sorry, what? Knowledge applied. That's a good... That's a good a definition. It's not just knowledge, is it? You know, have you ever heard somebody who, I don't know, has a PhD, but they have no street smarts? You know? <laughs> uh, my favorite professor in seminary at Westminster was, was well known for that. Um, being a brilliant man theologically, but couldn't tie a shoe almost. That's kind of mean, but you, you, get what, you get the point. Wisdom is knowledge applied. 
And when we talk about God's wisdom, it is that by which God knows all causes and effects and ordains them to their proper ends. It's that by which he ultimately accomplishes his own end. Right? It's the correspondence of God's thought with the highest good of all things and how to get there. God's wisdom is his ability, his power to act for a right end. So again, it's not just his action, it's not just his knowledge, but it's the means to a right end. Uh, I, I remember teaching on this before, and I gave the analogy of following your GPS. You know, um, you look on there, maybe, maybe you, you talk to somebody and you say, you know, how do I get to Mr. Smith's house? Uh, and they tell you. And then you pull up on the GPS, and the GPS shows you three different routes. But one of those routes, according to their data, is the fastest and most sufficient. That's the wisest route. So it's not just the knowledge of how to get there. What is the best way to get there? What's the fastest way to get there? What's the most efficient way to get there? That's God's wisdom. God discerns things by knowledge. But His wisdom is the proper acting on them to meet the right ends and in the best way for the highest good. Skillfully managing all things and ordering them according to His infinite understanding. Um, This is important as we think about how knowledge and wisdom are different. Uh, Edward Lee, early 17th century Puritan. God's knowledge differs from His wisdom in our apprehension because His knowledge is the mere apprehension of every object But his wisdom is that whereby he does order and dispose of all things. His knowledge is conceived as an act, but his wisdom as a habit or inward principle. Get that? That's what wisdom is getting at. Again, not just knowing everything there is to know, but skillfully managing all things and ordering them according to his understanding and for their highest good. Uh, here, kind of an excursus, we might think about God's omniscience and how God's omniscience relates to his wisdom. Um, God's omniscience speaks to how God knows all things. He knows all events. He knows all circumstances of things perfectly and immediately in his timeless eternity. Um, his knowledge is all in Encompassing, it's complete, it's without defect, it lacks no detail concerning either things that are possible or things that are actual, or concerning the possibilities that will be actualized or not. And it's all at once because God is immutable. He's free from succession, He doesn't change. You know, I've, I've heard it say that God is uneducated. He is uneducated, He's never educated. God does not learn. He cannot learn. It's impossible for him to learn. Because if he learns, he didn't know all, everything to begin with. He's not perfect to begin with. So God's omniscience, he knows it all at once in his timeless eternity. 
And in a sense, it's intuitive. He doesn't learn it or seek it out. It's causal. It's not just contemplating. He's not a spectator, right? Watching things like play out. He doesn't observe and then decree. Everything he knows is causal. It's independent. It's not dependent upon other things or other events or other actions. It, you know, he, can't, he doesn't peer into the future and say, well, okay, this is going to happen, so I, I know this. That would imply change in God. And it's full and it's perfect. It's, it's complete in every respect. And this is what makes his knowledge distinct from a creature's knowledge. It doesn't evolve. It doesn't change. It doesn't learn. It doesn't grow. It's full and complete. So, omniscience refers to the pure or theoretical understanding that God has. And his wisdom denotes the practical understanding of ordering to a right end or goal. You might ask, why do we care? Why is this distinction important? Romans 8.28 We know that for those who love God, all things work together for good, and for those who are called according to His purpose. God is wise to use our difficult, heartbreaking, troubling circumstances trials, hurts, pains. He's so wise that He knows and not only knows but possesses the power and ability and love to use even horrible things for a good end. Isn't the cross the greatest example of this? Didn't didn't Joseph say you meant it for evil but God meant it for good? When we understand God's wisdom, it's such a great comfort. He's wise. He doesn't just know knowledge. He knows how to get to our highest good. And that's what he's working out in his decree. i got to move quickly. What is love? Actually, listened to this song last night. came up. Uh, I was taking my children to their... Uh, uh, their dance, their formal. What is love? What is the love of God? God's love, uh, for the confession says that He's most loving, gracious, merciful, long-suffering, abundance in goodness and truth. Abundant in goodness and truth. This is getting at what it means when we speak about the love of God. What is the love of what is love and what is the love of God? That's what I want to think about for a second. Now, here's the danger. When we ask this question, a common, a very common, very dangerous error, error is to pattern God's love after our love as humans. Our love is emotional. Our love is sentimental. Our love waxes and wanes. Our love has a beginning and sometimes an end. Uh, I've used this example before, but um, you know, I met my wife when I was 21 years old. There was a time when I did not love her because I did not know her. 
There was a time when I met her that I did not love her yet. But at some point, my coming into contact with her and getting to know her created a love in my heart. Right? I reacted to that. If we think about that and apply it to God, we're off on a very wrong foot. God's love has no beginning. If it did, He's not immutable. Uh, Gerhardus Voss, famous statement. The greatest proof that God loves you is that He never began to love you before the foundation of the world. You were chosen in Christ. So God's love is not like human love. There's an analogy, but it's different. The love of God is based upon everything we've seen so far, that He's simple. Not made up of various parts that come together. He's immutable. He doesn't change. He's independent. I'll say. He's eternal. Again, human creaturely love arises because of something in the object of our love. It's created. It's limited. It's finite. It's in response to external stimuli. But God's love is an affection that arises inward and extends outward. He loves voluntarily, he loves freely, he loves eternally, not because something causes him to love, not because something is worthy of his love. It's uncaused, it's uninfluenced, it's immutable, it's eternal, and it's perfectly consistent with all of his attributes. Continuing on, properly defined. Gotta hurry. God's love is the propensity of the divine essence for the good. Both in the sense of God's inward intrinsic benevolence or the willing of the good and in the sense of God's external extrinsic benefits or kindness towards His creatures. It's inward and it's outward. In layman's term, God's love is first and foremost directed at Himself, the inner Trinitarian love, as the highest good. The Father loves the Son, loves the Spirit. And this is why God's love is eternal, it's immutable, it's perfect, it's complete, not based upon the worthiness of the object. All right, I got to. Move forward, just in, to see it in creation, his love is seen in providence and preserving of the world. His love is seen in his goodwill towards all people. His love is most specifically seen in the salvation of the elect. So, um, I'm gonna speed through these really quick. Uh, if you want a little small, very helpful book on the attributes of God, uh, Arthur Pink is a great place to start. It's a tiny little book, it's really, really good. He gives seven characteristics of love. I'm not going to go through these. I don't have time. But it's uninfluenced. It's eternal. No beginning, no end. There's a boss quote I mentioned a moment ago. Best proof that God will never cease to love us lies in that He never began. Uh, It's sovereign. God loves all people, but He does not love all people the exact same way as a special love for His bride. It's like I have a special love for my bride as well. 
infinite as well. It's an infinite love. It has neither brim nor bottom. There's no depth of His love that we can fathom, no height that we can scale. It's a length and a breadth that we cannot measure. It is immutable as well. His love is not caused by you or me. We have assurance that nothing that we can ever do will change His love if we are in Christ. His love is holy. Again, all the attributes of God are one properly. It's a holy love. And of course, the highest expression of that is in giving Himself for us and for our redemption. It's gracious and... In fact, that's what we're going to look at briefly next. As the confession says, most loving, gracious. So it's a a gracious type of love. What does this mean? The confession speaks of God being most gracious. It's an aspect of His love. Graciousness hits at how He shows favor to creatures who do not deserve it. You've heard that before. Grace, God, God's riches at Christ's expense, or unmerited favor. Uh, graciousness is that God gives us the opposite of what we deserve. He gives many gifts to His creatures. He's not stingy and exacting. And it's His basic mode of relating to us as most gracious. His graciousness Uh, flows from his uh, compassion and his pity to our plight. In fact, that also relates to his mercy as well. He gives relief to those who do not deserve it as the God of all mercy. Compassion flowing from God's pity for us. Thomas Brooks said here, When we think about mercy, it is free mercy that every day keeps hell and my soul asunder. It is mercy that daily pardons my sins. It is mercy that supplies all my inward and outward wants, his needs. It is mercy that preserves and feeds and clothes my outward man. It is mercy that renews, strengthens, and prospers my inward man. It is mercy that has kept me many times from excuse me, committing such and such sins. It is mercy that has kept me many a time from falling before such and such temptations. It is mercy that has many a time preserved me from being swallowed up by such and such inward and outward afflictions. God's love is gracious and God's love is is merciful. Think of how Christ is described, entitled, our merciful high priest. He took our nature, He felt our plight, and He's ready to dispense grace at every point, every time of need. God's mercy. Alright, i got four minutes. I'm going to try to... <laughs> I'm going to try to get through this. Another aspect of His love is that God is long-suffering. Long-suffering is the delaying or tempering of the punishment that sinners deserve. God is patient. He delays the execution of His judgment. 
right? Uh, Christ, for example, uh, Christ's death in Romans 4, it speaks of how God passed over former sins. That's a display of his long suffering. Second uh, Peter speaks of how um, God is not slack concerning his promise. Right? But is, but is patient and long-suffering, not willing that any should fail uh, to, to meet repentance. I'm paraphrasing there. So God is unhurried, which is like the opposite of reactionary. You know, you think of someone who's reactionary. God is unhurried. He's, he's long-suffering. God also is good. This is another aspect of His love. Goodness is his interest in the welfare of another, or his generosity. God is essentially good itself. Anything that is truly good mirrors God's goodness. And this extends to all of his actions. All of his actions are good. Whether we're talking about the, the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah, or we're talking about you know, the crucifixion of Christ for us and for our salvation, or whether we're talking about Him blessing you with um, a new job and, and a stable income, or whether we're talking about Him being sovereign over you being stricken with cancer or the loss of a loved one. That's hard to hear, but God is essentially good in everything that He does, even if we can't see it. That doesn't mean that everything is good, We can't say that evil is good, but we can say that God is good in bringing about whatever he brought about, even if we can't see it. In fact, we're going to see this in the next hour. Everything that happens from God, all of his actions are good by necessity, even though the the action itself might not be good. And that distinction is hard to grasp, but God is good. His intentions are good. Right? God knows, m- m- another way to put it, in some mysterious way, God allowing evil in this world is for the greater good. We don't know how. Question? God, could you say it a little louder? Yeah. Uh, God does not do good things. Good things are good because God does them. God does not do good things. Good things are good because God does them. It's a great way of putting it. Everything that comes from God is good. And in some mysterious way, allowing evil in this world, including everything that happens to you that you that hurts, that is evil, that is bad, that is frustrating, that is painful, in some way is for the greater good, even if we don't know how. very last phrase, and we'll conclude with this. I'm going to make it. I can't believe it. We're going to make it through this. The Lord our God is faithful. He is forgiving iniquity, transgression and sin, the rewarder of them that diligently seek Him, and most terrible and just in His judgments, hating all sin, and will by no means clear the guilty. I'm going to summarize this as His faithfulness, and we'll conclude with this. He's faithful to forgive. He's faithful to reward. But when we say that God is faithful, we also mean that God is faithful to punish. He's just and faithful to judge. 
It's an aspect of his faithfulness. Skip through this. God is consistent and constant in his promises and his grace and in his just justice and judgment. This rests on the intrinsic truthfulness of God, the immutability of God. If God is to be faithful, he must be truthful, he must be immutable. And this is the ground of our Christian consolation as well. The use of his immutability. He's immutable, that's comfort to us because he's faithful. So he never forgets, he never falters, he never fails to keep his word. He's faithful to keep his word, his promises. He's faithful to reward, to hear. He's faithful to judge and punish. Because he is faithful in his being, because he's eternal, eternally faithful in the Trinity, his promises, his word are absolutely sure and certain. Hebrews 6.13, when God made a promise by, to Abraham, since he had no one greater to whom to swear, he swore by himself, saying, surely I will bless you and multiply you. This is God's faithfulness. And that is the ground of our comfort and hope. That God will do what He said He will do. He will faithfully forgive our sins. He will faithfully grant us eternal life. Um, We're just going to end here. We don't have enough to finish. There's a picture of John Owen for you. (laughs) Uh, I'll I'll at least leave a quote if you want to read it. Um, It calls us to make bold venture upon the grace and faithfulness of God. Seeing that Christ was bruised for our sins, wounded for our transgressions. He made sin for me. Here I must give up my sins to him who is able to bear them. So, to sum up, God's faithfulness describes everything that we've talked about. Whether it be his love or his mercy or his holiness or his justice or his wisdom or his truth. God's faithfulness describes them all. God's holiness describes them all. God's love describes them all. God's goodness describes them all. All of the attributes of God are actually one. We distinguish them. We see them differently. But in truth, they are one. And this is what gives us hope. And this is the ground of our consolation. And this is why God is not like a man, a creature. God is His own other thing. and He's altogether beautiful. All right, we're out of time by far, so let me close in prayer.